want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Luke, chapter 14. I'm going to finish the discussion that we uh, started last Sunday morning. Entitled, Cost, or Christ Following and Cost Counting. Luke chapter 14, last week we looked at verses 16 going down through verse 24. The discussion that we started last Sunday morning is seeking to answer this question. What are the characteristics of the call that Christ issues to every Christian? Okay, what are the characteristics of this? We call it the call to discipleship, the call to Christ following. What, if we were going to describe that call in words... What are the words that we would use to describe the call of Christ that rests upon the life and heart of every believer? Last Sunday morning, we looked at the parable of a man who was holding a banquet and he invited three different individuals to come. And when the servants went to see if they were coming to the meal, they came up with three excuses, three reasons why following Christ at that time just wasn't going to quite work out well. It would create some degree of inconvenience in their life. And so they say to him, I just did this, I just did this. Last one says, I just got married and I'm busy, I'm tied up. And the conclusion that we drew out of that passage of Scripture was this. The call of Christ upon your life will be this for you. It will be a source of inconvenience. In other words, following Christ will never be the easy path to choose. It will never be the path of least resistance. It will never be the broad way. It will always be the narrow way. It won't be the unobstructed path. It will be the obstructed path. It will be the path in which you have to rest in the power of God. And there will never be a better time than now to get on that path. And I think what I tried to impress upon you last week was this. If you have excuses today, seasons in life issues, for why you can't get on the path and follow Christ today, it is likely that you will always have excuses for why you can't Get on the path and follow Christ. If you're waiting for the convenient moment, for the day when the weather's perfect to plant the garden of your life, it is likely that you have probably been doing that for a long period of time. And that perfect opportunity to follow Christ does not exist. Following Christ will always mean some kind of inconvenience that affects your life and probably affects the lives of those around you. That is a price that you must be willing to pay in order to follow the Savior who has called you by His grace. Christ following will always mean tolerating some level of discomfort in your life. I want to pick up in verse 25. Large crowds were following Jesus. Fascinating statement. I wrote in my notes this. This statement, large crowds, says more about Jesus than it does about the crowds. That statement doesn't tell you a lot about the crowds except that they were large. And that something about Christ was compelling and was magnetic. There was something about him that drew people to him. And then there was something about him that drove many people away. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. They were caught up in the, if you will, the popularity, the charisma of Christ, the miraculous power of Christ. And being discerning, he knows that. In the Gospel of John, you read this statement. It says, many believed in him, 
but they would not entrust themselves to him. That is a fascinating statement, and it's downright scary. There were many that believed that Jesus did miracles. The Pharisees knew that he did miracles. They believed, but they would not entrust themselves to him. They watched him when he came in the temple to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Think of it. So that they could condemn him. You want to talk about spiritual blindness? Well, we know he does miracles, but that seems to be irrelevant to them. If he does it on the wrong day, then we got him. Because they didn't want to deal with the discomfort of following Christ, which meant relieving their religious establishment, which meant leaving the hierarchical structure that gave them praise. They loved to walk around in their robes and be given the greetings of leaders in the church. They loved it. They believed in him. They knew he did miracles, but they would not commit themselves to him. Same is true of many people that were in the crowd following Christ. And last Sunday we said that in every area in America, there are crowds of people that go to church, and then there are They're curious. Then there are congregations of people that attend churches, people that say, that's my church. And within that group, there are people that are committed, that have been convinced that there is salvation through the shed blood of Christ, and they have trusted in Christ. And of that group of people, there are people that are on mission, who are willing to be inconvenienced in order to be truly followers of Christ. To that crowd, congregation, committed, now core, Jesus speaks. He turns to them and says, if any of you comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. How do you feel after I read that? How many of you feel comfortable? So here's what the pastor's supposed to do. Kind of soften the blow. Let's domesticate this call. Let's make it appealing. And that is my great temptation. To make this, so that you can get your arms around it without it, being square. I want to make it round so that when you embrace it, it's, it's somewhat comfortable. I would savage the text if I did that. Is the statement in some way an idiom, uh, a figure of speech? The answer unequivocally is yes. But if in trying to describe the command, I I steal it of the bite that is obvious and apparent in the statement. I destroy this passage of Scripture. And I'll tell you right now, in the past when I've preached on this passage, I have destroyed it. To my shame. Natural tendency, qualify the text, soften the blow, because it sounds too harsh in our culture. What it really means is this, to love everything else less than Christ in a way that will cause some degree of discomfort in my life. That's unavoidable. In a way that will negatively affect people that I love. And that is what's hard about Christ following, isn't it? 
if I really devote myself to Christ, it is going to affect my life in a way that will have initially negative effects in my life and in my relationships. And quite frankly, I don't want to hurt anybody around me. I like to keep people around me happy. That is my compelling desire in my flesh. But I can't look at this passage of Scripture I, and, 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 and take away from it the edge that is clearly intended by what Jesus says. What is he saying? I think he's saying something like what every married person in this room probably said the day that you got married. We use a radical word in our wedding vows. We say this, and forsaking all others. Okay, I want to tell you something. If somebody comes to you and says, I forsook so-and-so, you don't say to them, well, that was really nice. You would say, what'd they do to you? Why would you do that? But in an effort to communicate the depth of marital relationship and the solidarity and fidelity of it, what do we do? We use an idiom that we mean. I will protect my heart from attraction to others for you alone. And it is meant to be radical. It's meant to have an edge. That my commitment to my wife is so strong that it will affect my relationship with all other women. And if it doesn't, I know I pastor a church that would hold me accountable. All right? And I understand that. And I appreciate that. Marriage is a radical commitment. Christ following is a radical commitment. And if, I, if somehow I describe this text in a way that you don't come away saying what Christ calls for it makes me uncomfortable. I did damage to this text. Okay? I, made, I domesticated it. I made it so that you could go out saying, I just, I, honey, I, I have love Christ and, and hate you. But here's what I mean. <laughs> You're first. And Jesus said, no, I have to be first. His call will make you uncomfortable. What is he calling for? I think two thoughts under this idea of being uncomfortable. Jesus is calling for a primary and fundamental allegiance in your life. And, and when you read this statement, okay, this should this should cause you to say either he deserves such full-out allegiance that he is more important than my mom and dad. He is more important in my life than my wife. He is more important in my life than my kids. If he is not fundamentally and truly worthy of that kind of devotion, then he is, I'm going to use a strong word, he is egotistical and delusional. It's the only conclusion I can come to from this text. If he does not deserve such supremacy and loyalty and fidelity in my life, then is he is self-obsessed. He, he, he doesn't, he's not like the neat teacher here that everybody loves. He's the Savior who's calling for a radical sense of commitment that causes every husband to say to his wife, I have to check with God first. That causes every wife to say, I know I'm supposed to submit to you, but I have a high authority in my life. And I need to check with him first. That should cause every child to say, I know what my mom and dad want for me in my life. I know what they want for me educationally. I know what they want for me career-wise. I know what I want for my own life. But he must come first. It has to, in some way, radically reorganize your life and make you uncomfortable when you contemplate what it would mean to commit to someone who asks for this much. 
There is nothing modest and reasonable about the call of Christ on our lives. Okay? His call will fundamentally disrupt your life. And if it has not so radically affected your life, you haven't followed the call yet. I'm going to illustrate this from my own life. And, and please understand, my following of Christ is weak and inadequate. When I was, and, and here's the proof, okay? I graduated from high school. I grew up in a family business. I wanted to be there because the lawyer and the business guy and the insurance guy explained to all of us as my dad's three sons why it would be advantageous for us to stay in the family business. And I took it hook, line, and sinker. I got out of high school, and for three years, I challenged God as to his right to call my life to go into ministry. And for three years, I wrestled with the disruptive nature of obedience to Christ. It would mean relocating. It would mean moving to New Jersey. I didn't even know that part. Okay. Maybe I would have said no. It meant a radical reorganizing of my life. My hometown is nice. My brothers live on the same driveway that my parents live on. You know what? My flesh would love that for my kids. I would love it. And I'm, I am not standing here as someone who was sacrificed. Okay? After being in India and in Indonesia, I don't sacrifice. My life has been slightly disrupted and greatly blessed. But if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to make choices that are going to cause your wife to say to you, are you sure? That are going to cause your father-in-law. Is my father-in-law here this morning? He is? Oh, there he is. Okay. Oh, we'll modify the story, okay? <laughs> when we told him that we were coming to New Jersey and we gave him the name of the town. Now, you si, you understand why I say this. My father-in-law is a planner, okay? He had his house paid for before he would get married, okay? He's careful and well thought out. Okay, that is completely different than me. And his wife married me. And I said, we're going to Washington, New Jersey. He drives up to find our church building to see the town we're going to be in and what the church looks like. And he calls me on the phone and says, I can't find a church building. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and my father-in-law didn't know Christ at this time. He didn't know Christ. He thought family businesses were good ideas because he has one of his sons involved in that. He wrestled with the discomfort of me leaving a good-paying job and a good future. And I had to make him uncomfortable in order to obey God. So did his daughter. Sad to say, and remember, Sly, before you were saved, you came up and you said to me, I don't like what's in this pamphlet. I said, what? In the pamphlet it said that if you don't trust Christ, then hell is your future. But if you do trust Christ, heaven is your future. He said, I don't like it. You know, you never seen Cy exercise like that, but he was exercised. I never saw him like that either. It was uncomfortable. And I had to say to him as my father-in-law, who I love and respect. I respected him as much as any Christian businessman in my home church. I had to say to him, you know what? It's not about what I want. I'm not leaving the business because I want it to. I tried to stay there for three years. And God would not let me settle. He would not let me be happy. He let me succeed. And God has an interesting way of working, doesn't he? He'll let you succeed, but he will steal happiness from you. 
because the Spirit of God will pursue you and seek you and draw you until you embrace the uncomfortable part of Christ following, which will always affect everybody around you. And if you don't want to be uncomfortable, you can't follow Christ. I think that is the abundantly clear emphasis of this passage of Scripture. By the way, the closure on that story is my father-in-law trusted Christ two weeks after we moved here because God started the work in his heart. Why? Because his daughter was willing to experience some discomfort to demonstrate commitment to Christ, to allow him to be ahead of her dad, to love dad less because loving Christ more was more important. But here's, here's the bottom line of that, okay? That loving her dad less was the best way that she could love him because it showed him the infinite value of knowing Christ. Folks, if Christ and your love for him and his value doesn't alter your life in any way, people don't believe your claims. If, he, if, if, if the glory of Christ doesn't disrupt and affect and make uncomfortable your life, people are looking. They're looking to see if your commitment to Jesus has any kind of true effect on your decision making and on your life. And when they see it, when they see that it changes how you use your time, how you spend time with your family, not whether you do or not, but how you do, how you use the resources that God has given you, when they see that, when they see that the infinite value of Christ has allowed you to reorganize your life and give Him supremacy, not because He's egotistical and delusional, but because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. When they see that, they're going to become curious about your Savior. But see, a God that doesn't change your life is not attractive. And Jesus Christ calls for a radical reorganization of your life. That will lead to discomfort. There is nothing modest and reasonable about this call. It will definitively disrupt your life. Here's the question. Did the Savior live that kind of life? Did he live that kind of life? I want you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12 real quickly. John chapter 12. And verse 27. Context. You're in the middle of the Gospel of John, but you're at the beginning of the last week of Christ's life. You are in chapter 12. You're at Thursday of the Passion Week. You still have 11 chap or 9 chapters to go in the book that all describe the Passion of Christ. That all describe the teaching of His love for His disciples. The cost of God honoring obedience. That's what it all describes. As Jesus contemplates the weight of the cross falling on his shoulders, John chapter 12, verse 27, this is what he says to his disciples. He says, now is my heart troubled. And what shall I say? Okay, meaning the prospect of the cross is now immediate. It's not three years distant. It's not 33 years distant. It is immediate. And as he contemplates it, he is saying to his disciples, I am troubled deeply in my heart. And what shall I say? He lays out two options. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? It is uncomfortable. I don't want to pay this price. This is more than I imagined. Here's what I believe. In his humanity, the prospect of the cross and the physical suffering of it to pay the price for our sin was more overwhelming than he could have imagined. And when it came, Luke uses words like this. He bristled and shuddered. 
the uncomfortable nature of obeying his Father in heaven came over him. But look at his response. What shall I say, brothers? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Now, folks, that is an amazing statement. This that makes me uncomfortable is why I came. And his discomfort, his inconvenience is the cause of our ultimate and unbelievable salvation. Here's the bottom line. Mark chapter 14, verse 33. And I'll just read this passage for you. Garden of Gethsemane. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And now this is Mark looking at Christ through the eyes of Peter, James, or John. He took them along with him. They observed. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Folks, eternal God in flesh preparing to pay the price for my sin and yours looks at what it's going to cost and he is visibly, deeply distressed and troubled. This is the man who could raise the dead. This is the man who fed the 5,000. This is the man who stood up to the Pharisees and told the truth. This is the man who went into the temple and flipped over the tables. And as he looks at this radical, inconvenient, uncomfortable step of obedience, he is shaken to his very core. Hebrews 4 says this. We do not have a high priest who is untouched by our infirmities, by our fears, but was in every way tested like we are yet without sin. And he lays that for the disciples. Don't he say, what shall I say? The disciples are probably like, I have a thought. <laughs> okay. I got a thought. And he says, no, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, no. This is why I came. He was deeply distressed and troubled. And then words, verse 34 of Mark 14, my soul is overwhelmed, he says to the disciples, with sorrow to the point of death. Folks, let that settle in. His love for the Father, his allegiance to the Father, his obedience to the Father, so utterly complete that he would risk and give everything to do the will of his Father. He says to his disciples, stay here and keep watch with me. Stay here. They're probably thinking, what in the world is going to happen? And we know this, their desire to flee was very strong. Because when he is put in bonds, every one of them, including Peter who said, over my dead body, they all ran. Because it was way too uncomfortable in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was way too uncomfortable when they came to take the Savior. And it was way too uncomfortable for Peter, who while he was running away is thinking, I'm the one that said I would never leave him. And here I am. And he, he mans up and he gets courage and he goes back to the house of Caiaphas. He comes by the fire and he says to himself, I'm here. And then he's challenged. Weren't you with him? No. No, don't know. You sound like a Galilean. That's just coincidence. You were with him. I swear I don't know him. Why? Because the uncomfortable nature of the call of Christ will cost 
more than you can imagine. Your love for Christ may cause your mate to think that you love them less. There is risk involved here. We are a people who are addicted to comfort and are weak on commitment. But I would issue this challenge to you this morning, my friends, in this church, that when you make the choice to love Christ more, when you choose to love Christ in a way that radically reorders your life and priorities, your mate, illustration, your wife will have the best husband she could possibly have. And your parents will have the best teenagers that they could possibly want. And husband, your wife will be the best woman that you could possibly want. Because when Christ comes, He radically reorganizes your life and priorities. He will make you uncomfortable. But out of that discomfort, out of that breaking, out of that sacrificial obedience, something glorious will emerge. That is the design and plan of God. So I say to you, young people, you want to be happy in your marriage? Do this. Men, find a woman who loves Christ more than she loves you. And that will make you uncomfortable, but it will be the joy. If my wife is not in here, right? I have a a wife who defers to Christ before me. And I will tell you this, I am a blessed man. Find someone who loves Christ more than you. Find someone who will sacrifice to the call of Christ more than you. Who will prefer Christ over you. And then they will be compelled to be the wife or the husband that God wants them to be. And that will be the source of incredible and great joy for your life. You can go another route. But I would beg you, find a woman who loves Christ, man. And young ladies, find a man who loves Christ. And do not settle for anything less than that. That is the design and plan of our Father. Second half of verse 26 draws this down. He says, and this I think is the modifier on this statement. If you do not hate mother, father, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And now I want you to focus on this statement and I want to see how this I think helps us to understand the broader context of what hate means in the context. You must be willing to sacrifice everything in order to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. I think that is the the thrust here. And I think it's interesting that Christ inserts the thought, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's not saying, if you don't take up the cross, it's going to be difficult to follow Christ. He's saying, it's going to be impossible to follow me if you are unwilling to bear this uncomfortable thing called the cross, which was clearly an instrument of a savage death. That's the cross. And if I don't want this comfort in my life, I think this is what Jesus is saying, then you can't be my disciple. He wants us to be cost counters who think about what is it going to mean if I give my life fully to Christ. And here's the bottom line. There is nothing in this text that is comfortable about a cross. You can't go halfway on a cross. No one got nailed on a cross and said, you know what, I want out now. I recant. No, by the time you got on the cross, you were done. Your life was over and something new was going to emerge. And that is the nature of this, can't follow me unless you are fully surrendered. And the idea simply is this. 
in a world where the cross has been beautified and stripped of his meaning as an in- instrument of death, as a way of suffering. We need to rescue it and say this. And this is the third word that I'll share. And I'm going to stop here this morning. The call of Christ is inconvenient. It is uncomfortable. It's going to shake you. If you really look at it, it's going to shake you. And then it is this. It is radical. The choice of Christ to go to the cross so deeply bothered Peter that he said, you will do it over my dead body. It was that radical of a choice on the part of the Savior. Now, I submit to you this illustration. The name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I mentioned in our Sunday school class this morning, he was a pastor in Germany who participated in something called the Protestant Resistance Movement. He was, as a result of his activities, of his writings about Christianity, of his opposition to the Nazi government as a pastor in Germany under Hitler. He publicly spoke. He wrote articles. He was warned that it would cost him his life. And he continued to, in a gentle, not belligerent way, but in a gentle, self-effacing, self-sacrificing, radical way, he continued to poke his eye in the sin of Nazi Germany. He kept calling it what it was. He wrote one of the most powerful books that has ever been written on discipleship. It's simply called this, The Cost of Discipleship. You know what Dietrich is trying to say? He's not trying to say it. He's saying it. There is no Christ following without cost counting. None. If your commitment to Christ has not inconvenienced your life, has not made you uncomfortable, has not been at some level spoken about as radical by observers, your commitment is probably too weak. Dietrich Bonhoeffer penned these amazing words when he was 39 years old just before he was hanged in a concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany, he said this, Death, the cross, is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Folks, here's what most of us are thinking. I'm working my way up towards that sacrifice. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of growing in Christ and I'm beginning to take up the cross. You know what Dietrich is saying? Exactly what Jesus said to his disciples. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and then follow me. What does it mean? There is no Christ following with rad- without radical cross uptaking. There's none. So the cross is the means by which at the beginning of my life, I meet the Savior who bore a cross for me. And he says, come. And you say, I'm coming. He says, oh, before you come, take that up. Take up that symbol that says, Lord, I give you everything. And what Dietrich is arguing is this. The cross meets us not at the end like it did in the life of Christ. It meets us at the beginning. And what does it do then? It dictates all of our decisions. It's the ultimate place where cost counting takes place. And here's what he said. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ because when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. When God calls you, he bids you come and die. I can't soften this. I can't say there is Christ following without taking up a cross, which means I am willing to go all the way, which means that the Savior that we serve, who loved us and gave Himself for us, 
is not egotistical and delusional. He is Lord. And when you understand that, you will find defiance and disobedience to become very, very difficult. The day God confronted me three years into my career, which was purely mine, because it was my path, it was my business, my idea, the means by which I would take care of my family. He confronted me three years into that path. You know how he did it? I sat in a service under an evangelist named Ron Comfort, who had the nerve before he preached to ask a simple question. Here's what he said. If you would promise before I preach tonight to say yes to God about whatever he says to your heart, raise your hand now. I hadn't looked at my life this way. I was in shades of obedience and shades of disobedience. That question, that question destroyed my career and set me free. You know, because here's what I had to say. Do I want to have Christ say, okay, there's the cross, take it up and do my will. Do I want to say, no, thank you. Because we, we tolerate this idea that we, we intermittently carry the cross. That's how we define discipleship. Jesus is saying, you need to take it up and then, present tense, follow me for the rest of your life. That is discipleship. Anything other than that isn't discipleship. It may be weak Christianity, it may be anemic Christianity, and by the way, it always produces anemic faith. But that day, God, he just asked me a very simple question to a brother in Christ. And here was the question to me. Tim, are you willing to leave this building con con continuing on in your rebellion with your life? And my hand went up. I was just like, why is my hand up? Why am I responding to this? This and seriously, I ra as I raised my hand, I thought, this means I have to go to college, I have to go to seminary, I have to drive down to South Carolina for school. This is everything. But I couldn't help it. And here's what's amazing. In the giving up of my career, guess what happened? Waves of joy that I had never experienced in my life. Because rebels are never happy. Christians who don't carry the cross are always in this anemic, ambivalent place. They don't know what to do. Because we're tolerating two worlds, two masters, and you know what? It's impossible. So you end up doing nothing. You end up committing to nothing. That's why he says, if you don't hate even your own life, which means the living out of your career, your goals, your plans, your retirement, all those sorts of things. Jesus is saying, look, just go do something else. Don't follow me. I'm struck by the call of the early disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Here's the question we don't know. How much did they know about Christ? We don't know. But we know this. That when Jesus came to Peter and said, Peter, follow me. What does it say? He left everything and followed Christ. What did everything represent? Come on, it's his life. James and John, sons of Zebedee, Jesus comes. Hey, James and John, follow me. And then James and John look at each other and they're like, this is crazy. But let's go. You'll never hear the disciples complain. 
Do you notice that in Scripture? You never find Peter saying later, you know what, we sacrificed so much and it just wasn't worth it. Joy. We saw him, John says later, 1 John chapter 1. We touched him, we handled him, we saw his glory. And for them, here's the bottom line. If you can sing that song soon and very soon and not find your heart attracted to what you love most, it's because you're not fully committed. You see, if my life here is good, pleasant, you know, well, well provided for, my longing for heaven is weakened because I'm counting on these things. I visited a friend, sold a business about eight years ago for $12 million, 70 years old. A dear friend of my dad when my dad was first saved. He's actually a good guy. He's a, he's a good man. He put most of his uh, money into a charitable remainder trust because he didn't want to ruin his kids' lives. Very wise. He took me to his house, however, that he built. The house alone was $2 million plus the land. Okay? This house was absolutely gorgeous. Everything was custom. He was a uh, retired Marine who had become very so, so committed to the Marines and he named his company Marcor Medical Services, Marine Corps Medical Services. Took me through his house, showed me his workshop. His workshop is the size of my house. His workshop has central vac, floor sweep things where you just push the dust in that direction and it disappears. Pergo flooring in his shop. Okay, we get outside after we were leaving. Here's what I said to him. I had to ask my dad to forgive me for this later, but you know how sometimes things just pop out? I do, okay? I said to him, I said, Bob, if I lived in this house, I could not long for heaven. It was too nice. It was amazing. I said, some people can handle this. I can't. I can't. I said, this would threaten my commitment to Christ. I mean, it was, when I was in there, it was like... This, this should be your new goal. <laughs> right? Get a big church, you know? God never gave me the big church. He wouldn't trust me. And I honestly believe, I honestly with all my heart, God knows what early success would have done to me. He knows. When Christ bids a man come, he bids him come and die. If you're unwilling to take up the cross, here's what Jesus is saying. You can't follow me. You can't. For those of you that are in retirement age or nearing retirement age, us, okay? Scary thought, 50 in September. What are your retirement plans? What are your plans? He bids you come and die. I thank God. Uh, Dave and Donna Dietrich, I'll embarrass you guys, but just forgive me afterwards, okay? Uh, for two people that have said retirement is not about us. Bob and Arlene Dietrich say the same. Thumb and Lutz and I watched their life. Cy and Norma, I watched their life. It's not a life that is about us. It's a life that keeps the kingdom of God wrapped in. It's not a life that at retirement you drop the cross and go enjoy life. Folks, I was in, in, in Indonesia. I, I've spent time with a pastor named Pastor Ahian. My life is changed because of being with him. 
left a very profitable business, uh, trolling ships, fishing ships, Chinese businessman. Left it six years ago to start a church. Now he's going to leave that successful church because he's afraid that he's not doing what God wants him to do. He's going to start a church planting movement amongst, amongst the Islamic people at the risk of his life. He has an 11-year-old daughter who is paralyzed since birth. I watched this, we called him Big Papa. He's just big Chinese happy. I watched him kneel down beside his 11-year-old daughter and weep. Gently love her, touch her. She could just barely get out a smile as she turned her head, face distorted. He's just taking his family to the next level for Christ. It would be so easy in that situation to say, you know what, I need to take care of us and ours. You know what he's doing? He's pushing forward with them. He said, would you, this was like, this was to me devastating. He said, would you pray for us? You know what I felt like saying? I felt like falling on my face and saying, would you pray for me? Do you pray that I can escape the bondage of materials in my culture and really take up my cross? I don't even know what that means. I don't know what it's going to look like. I know it's something different. I don't mean different than me being here. I mean, it just means things are going to, something's got to change so that we can do ministry together and do something that's going to glorify God. God is attracting to us certain people that I think he's putting us in a place where we can begin to do something for his glory, not build, and I hope we build our building. Okay, please understand. But it's not about building the chapel of Warren Valley. It's about building something bigger called the kingdom of God of which we are a part along with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's going to affect everything. And I, I say this to you in faith, I don't even know what it looks like. But I believe God wants to use us. I'm excited about that. And this is the passage God laid on my heart to give you this challenge. Okay? Inconvenient. Are you ready? Will you rewrite your weekly schedule? Fifteen men on Tuesday night rewrote their schedule. Came to a Bible study in our basement. Fifteen men who aren't involved in other things by and large. I was so happy. I was so happy. But what if 15 men would learn how to read the Bible and share the truth of it with other men? What would, what would that do to a church? Why don't you go ask your wife if she wants you to be a different man? Why don't you go ask her if she would like to see you carrying your cross, leading your family in Christ? Because men, the ladies have done it far too long. They've had the burden of leadership. Shouldn't be that way. So, will you be inconvenienced? Will you become uncomfortable? Will you be radical? Because if you will be, best husband, best wife, best child, best pastor, best worker, best friend. Because Christ is in absolute control of your life because he deserves to be. Let's bow our heads this morning, Father.